Okay, welcome everybody. We have a rambunctious crowd in-house. Those of you who are at home and who will watch on the archives, we're in Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7, part 4 today, January 22nd. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, pray your spirit will be with us as we study this book, and we pray you'll open our eyes to the things you want us to know and consider, and uh, help us to comprehend these things uh, to the best of our ability by your spirit. Be with us and uh, those who can't be with us and help us to continue to seek you and not become discouraged and to uh, love you with all of our heart, might, mind, and our strength and bless those people who are having difficulty in this life now. Be with them and be with our volunteers and those who help keep the show going and the sermons. In Jesus' name, amen. I gotta find... Come to me
on okay we're in the midst of working through 17 promises jesus gives to those who are in the seven churches if he says they overcome and if they have ears to hear about midway through his promise making jesus adds another caveat to overcoming and hearing and says and he who keeps my word to the end now, before you get overwhelmed with what seems like a lot of qualifiers to receive the things Jesus is promising, if you think about it, overcoming, ears to hear, and keeps his word to the end are really redundancies. They, they really are. In fact, if we overcome, that means we've had ears to hear, which means we would keep his word to the end. If you keep his word to the end, it means you've had ears to hear and you have overcome. So don't let the repetitive nature of that disturb you. These are just the things that Jesus, through the revelation, says to John to tell the seven churches. All right, you ready? 
Last week, we covered the first six promises. The first one was to the church at Ephesus, where he said, if you've overcome and have ears to hear, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of paradise of God. That was the first promise. We covered that at length. The second one was to uh, Smyrna, the, the church at Smyrna, that they will not be hurt in the second death. And we talked about being hurt. We talked about being harmed, suffering loss, and what the second death is as uh, defined by Revelation, which is a trip to the lake of fire. And then to Pergamos, he says, and I will give to eat of the hidden manna. And we talked about the hidden manna and what it possibly could be. We try to cover what it says in scripture. Then also to Pergamos, he says, and I will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saveth he that receiveth it. These are the promises so far that have been given. It's at this point that Jesus to the church at Thyatira reiterates uh, the point that those who have overcome and those who have ears to hear, but now adds that third qualifier, which is synonymous with the first two, and keepeth my works to the end. This is to Thyatira. And the seventh promise is, to him who's overcome, heard, etc., will I give power over the nations. The promise is, I'll give power over the nations. Now, there's a group of believers that are on earth today and probably been around for a while. They're called Kingdom Now Believers. And their idea is that uh, we are trying to usher in the kingdom in preparation for Jesus to receive his kingdom. And kingdom now teaches that we are trying to turn this into a paradise here on earth. And this is a passage that they, proponents of kingdom now, post-millennialists use as evidence that the Christians are ultimately going to overcome this whole uh, world system. We will sit in positions of government we will be the ones who govern everything that happens. And so they are, for instance, the LDS might be considered, not officially, but kingdom now, where they believe the LDS church is going to consume the earth and LDS people will be in positions to rule the earth. It's very uh, theocratic. Uh, in my estimation, it's a stretch to believe that this ought to be the case and we ought to fight for it and push for it. Uh, and my view, I believe, is supported by the Greek. So let me explain. Two reasons. The word for power here, where he says, I will give him power over the nations. Power in the New Testament is typically dunamis. And that means the ability to have a supernatural act or, or, or power. It's where we get the word dynamo and dynamite, dunamis. It's a powerful force or exertion. That's the normal way power is uh, described in the New Testament from the Greek. But it's not dunamis here. The word is exousia, and it better means the right or the authority or the position over. And now that's a close, it's kind of a splitting hairs, but it is a different Greek word rather than dunamis. It's exousia, and it means to have authority over. Now, that's one thing, and if it was just that, we could say, all right, not that big of a deal. But you look at the King James, and it says, and I will give him power over the nations. The word for nation sounds like all the nations of the world, when in fact it's ethos in the Greek, which is an ethnicity. Uh, 
and which is typically related to the tribes or the 12 tribes of Israel. And so what he's really saying there is, I will give those who overcome authority over the tribes. Authority over the 12 tribes is a better way, I believe, to understand that. And that makes so much uh, more sense when we consider that the 12 tribes were promised salvation and rescuing from God, but that the Gentiles and Jews combined who overcame and hear and did the works of Jesus to the end would have authority over those 12 tribes. So that makes more sense in terms of what the Greek says and how it uh, interprets it rather than what the King James, uh, uh, how that puts it. Now, promises of saints reigning over, having authority over believers have been mentioned in scripture in different places. You'll remember Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 19, 28, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this was to the 12, that ye which have followed me in the generation when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you shall also sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we know that Jesus said to his apostles, you will judge the 12 tribes. Uh, if it, when I'm sitting on the throne, you will judge them. And so I have a hard time believing that we can take these words today and assign them to a future tense, that when he tells his disciples, you'll judge the 12 tribes, it meant they would do it. So I think it was said to them and not to all people when we read it today. Also, how long will this judgment of the 12 tribes go on? We have to ask ourselves. When Jesus told his disciples, you will sit in judgment of them, is that still going on today? Or was that something that was met and finished off from the preterist view? Since in Christ Jesus, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, uh, this judgment bestowed upon his direct disciples must be over. That, that's the only way I can see it. You, of course, may differ. However, we can easily see the words here in Revelation having application to all who come in faith meaning that male or female, bond or free, Jew or Gentile, they will have an authority over the 12 tribes uh, by virtue of their faith in Christ. And that makes sense to me. Uh, we also note that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And then he goes on and says, know you not that we shall judge angels and how much more things that pertain to this life. So again, with every, like everything we have when we study scripture, we can say, is that to me right now, I'm going to be a judge of angels. I'm going to be a judge of the world. And I can see how there could be application of Christians judging the ongoing world in some sense or fashion as, as the eternities roll on. Uh, to judge is a matter of authority. So we have a decision to make relative to what Jesus says here in Revelation. Were these words only to the saints then who have overcome, you will sit in authority over the tribes or does it have application to saints in the future? And it's, it seems like something we're bringing up a lot, but it's gonna come up a lot because we're studying Revelation and you have to decide, you know, are you gonna have, what view will you take of the book of Revelation? Is it gonna be the, uh, the idealist or the historicist or the uh, preterist or the futurist, you know? Uh, so 
were these words only to the saints then, or will it have application to saints in the future, including ourselves? Uh, it's quite possible from this that what we're reading here, all of this may have to do with a heavenly economy that we're not aware of, that in the heavenly economy, the heavenly kingdom of God, whatever is there, if there is a kingdom, if there's a wall, if there's an entrance, if there's a garden, if there's a temple, all of these things, whether they're physical, I mean, physically manifested or spiritually known, if all those things exist in this heavenly economy and we see it this way, then possibly we will be put in positions of judging over uh, angels and tribes and ethnicities and whatever else. I, we, I can't tell. So, uh, this promise can be seen in really narrow applications or it can be seen really broadly. And one more thing relative to Paul saying we will judge the angels. Chronologically, this is difficult if we're expecting to do this in the future. Try to stay with me. Jesus told his, his disciples that they would judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And Paul said that the saints will judge the world and angels. So when will or when would these judgments take place? We have to ask ourselves, okay, we're read that that will happen. When will they take place? Futurists believe they're going to take place in the future. And so when they study the word, they're saying, in the future, when we die or when we are resurrected or whatever, we will be the ones who are judging the world. We will be the ones who are judging angels because all of it hasn't happened yet. Others think that the judgment is ongoing and there's an economy in heaven where the saints are the ones who will be making judgments on people and things. Uh, but let me give you a, two passages in scripture, one from 2 Peter and one from Titus. 2 Peter 2.4 says, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So we know that that is one judgment of angels a reservation was made for them who rebelled and they were kept in darkness until the time of that judgment. And then in Jude 1.6 we read, and the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting change under darkness, that's Sheol, that's the pit, that's the dark place, that's hell, until the judgment of the great day. And so, we take all that kind of thought and we look at what the scripture says, there is a great day coming. It's the great day of the Lord. When he returns, it's always tied to his return, and at that point, that is when the judgment of the great day, according to scripture, is going to be tied to his second advent or his coming to earth with judgment and justice, and all of it's going to take place, including the angels. If or since the Bible, and the book of Revelation is clearly saying that this day of judgment was coming quickly in the book of Revelation. I can't help but believe that these passages have been fulfilled and that for that dispensation of that whole age, this has been wrapped up and culminated and it has no bearing to us on any literal application. But I know that there's great believers, smart believers, intelligent men and women who would say, no, 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 it's still gonna happen. But I'm also able to see how believers today can be blessed with authority over the tribes, the ethnos of the earth, and may continue to be set in places to judge angels 
however that economy is laid out as joint heirs with Christ. So having started down this road, uh, it's difficult to see clear application to that passage and then the next one, which is number eight of the 17 promises given to believers at Thyatira. And this is what Jesus says to them. This is, a this is the toughest one of all of them. And he who overcame shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall be broken to shivers. And then there's a colon and he says, even as I received of my father. So I've received this ability to give those who have overcome the ability to rule with a rod of iron. And then it says, as the vessels of a potter shall be broken to shivers. And from what I can tell, this is taken from Psalm uh, 278. And Psalm 278 speaks of the judgment that Israel is going to face uh, in the future. And there we read in Psalm 278, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. That's happened in scripture already at the day of uh, uh, when Peter went and visited Cornelius and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession, talking about the Gentiles. Then in verse nine, we read, thou shalt break them, those who rejected him as the only begotten with a rod of iron, and shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So if you cross-reference this verse with Psalm 2, 7, 8, we have an Old Testament prophecy speaking of what will happen to the nation of Israel after the Gentiles have become the Lord's inheritance and he, that God shall break them, those who rejected the Messiah, uh, the, 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 his son whom this day I have begotten thee, with a rod of iron and dashed them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's purely an apocalyptic end of the age, end of the time passage that uh, Jesus quotes from here to John, to the church of Thyatira in Revelation. Now, the, again, you know this, but the futurist says, we're waiting for this to happen. And the preterist says, this has happened in 70 AD. So the promise does have application to that specific time and date when Jesus will return, whichever it is in your mind. And I have no idea how we can apply it to believers today, though, that he will give us unless you're a kingdom now person and you believe that God is going to bestow upon believers the right to rule with uh, a rod of iron and that we will be in a place to dash the people into pieces like a potter's vessel into shivers. I don't see that. Uh, futurist kingdom now people see it that way. Um, but it's perfectly described as to what happened to the nation of Israel under Roman uh, rule from 63 up to 70 AD and even before. All right, number nine. This starts to get interesting again, in my opinion. And uh, Jesus adds to Thyatira a final promise, and I will give him the morning star. Sorry, I'm losing my throat. For starters, every translation I consulted, and I consulted the major ones, says this the same way and I will give him the morning star. So the, often in scripture, there is, there's enough variance between the translations, enough wiggle room in word use that you can say, well, it couldn't mean this or it could mean that and throws it up. 
but I point this out that there's no play on this phrase at all. It can't read anything but, and I will make him, uh, we can't read it, I will make him a morning star. We can't read it, I will make him the morning star. All we can do is read it as, I will give him the morning star. That's the promise. So I point this out as a distinction because we read in Revelation 22 toward the end of the book, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So contextually, we know Jesus is the morning star. By the way, that is translated as Lucifer, uh, which is a real conundrum and I'm not gonna get into, but that's what morning star means. Jesus assigns the name to himself here in Revelation 22, 16. So we know that when people went through the Old Testament and got to that place where they came across the morning star and, and, and they assigned Lucifer, that son of the morning, and he became Satan, that it's wrong. That, that uh, Satan's name is not Lucifer. Uh, his name is the devil. His name is the, the ha-Satan. It is not uh, Lucifer, that is just it. So, and it's important to understand that if you have any connection with Mormonism because they're great at calling him Lucifer. Uh, it makes me smile, my mom's name was Lou and my friends used to call her Lucifer. Uh, but, uh, sorry mom, uh, but uh, it has no connection to, it's Jesus is the morning star. He calls himself that there. So, where Jesus is the morning star, he promises the faithful that he will give them the morning star. So this may refer to him giving himself to them in terms of salvation, eternal life, power, glory, or I, we have to admit, if we're gonna look at everything, it could refer to the planet Venus. Now, I don't mean that Jesus is gonna give those in Thyatira the planet Venus, but the morning star is known throughout all ancient culture as the bright planet Venus that appears in the morning and it, it gives us the sign that a new day has begun. And so it's the first star that indicates, it's when the darkness fades, the morning star sh shines, and there's a heavy indication from it that a new morning has come. So there could be something that I will give you the new day, the new morning has come for you, I will give that to you. But because we don't know, we have to kind of stop here. Uh, but it does seem also that many people take this as he's gonna give some sort of ornament or glowing orb that will either represent the planet Venus in splendor or it's gonna be a gem or some diadem that goes into a crown. Uh, Jesus is called the son of righteousness, S-U-N of righteousness. It may play into that. We're just trying to cover all the angles for these 12 different promises, 17 different promises. All right. Number 10, Sardis. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. So this stuff is fascinating because it's the only time Jesus really tells us what shall be, at least in the life of the believers there. You're gonna be clothed in white raiment. And those of you who have been temple-going Mormons can start to see some of the things that were pulled from uh, the book of Revelation by Smith to come up with the... Uh, what happens in the LDS temple, the new name, uh, the white raiment, uh, uh, things like that, promises of future glory. So throughout scripture, of course, white is a symbol of purity. 
clothed in white is symbolic with righteousness and holiness and purity. The psalmist says in Psalm 51, seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And so white is, uh, uh, conveys purity. We know the famous Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's that white cleansing power of the blood of Jesus bestowed upon us by faith. You believe on him. That is cleanses us from our sin. It is by that faith. And we step into his kingdom and are cleansed, as Isaiah talks about. When it comes to clothing, the practice of wearing white clothing goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 5, the priests were coming out of the temple and all the people were arrayed in white. Very symbolic imagery of because you went and offered blood in the Holy of Holies, we now have been cleansed from the sins of this generation upon us by our fathers and by our own actions. We are dressed in white. So it was happening then um, when Jesus was on the Mount of uh, Olives, uh, no, excuse me, Mount of Transfiguration, we read in Matthew 17 too, and he was transfigured before them and his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as the light. So we're talking about bright white clothing. And it only stands to reason that those who overcome in the holy heavenly economy uh, by and through the blood of Christ will be clothed in white raiment. Uh, that makes me wonder if those who haven't overcome, if they'll be wearing plaid or, or whatever, but uh, because there's a difference in clothes, you know? You'll be clothed in white raiment. Well, maybe those people who are, are I'm just asking, you know? Uh, so a symbol of purity. Leviticus uses the term white uh, more than any other book or equal to Revelation. Revelation uses it as much as Leviticus, but Leviticus uses it and always talking about leprosy and how the leper uh, spots and sores turn white as snow. And so white is used in Leviticus a lot, but Revelation talks about it more than anything else. And it seems to be providing us with a picture of the end of the age or of all time, you decide, depending on your view, the consummation of all God has done through his son to redeem the world and bring those who are his into holiness. That seems to be, and that's why these promises are about these heavenly, purified, glorious things. So that's the 10th blessed assurance. Number 11 is the second part of his promise to Sardis, and he says, it's a big one. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. There's the promise. You overcome, you hear, he says, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Out is used twice there. The implication of this is names are written in that book already. He will blot some names out. Okay, that's the implication of what he said. The question I have before we cover the, the uh, content is, are all names written in that book? When he blots a name out, what will be the reason for blotting a name out if it's already been written in? So let's get into this. I wanna know, is this activity ongoing now? Does God have a book 
is it upon the throne with the other books, the book of life, the book of the lamb, is it open, are the names in it, either spiritually or materially, we can't tell, and is our names being blotted out, what, how does that apply to us today, or is it over, and was this applicable to that time and that age and the wrap up of everything that's happening here? Since I have been a Christian, I've heard that, you know, you wanna have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I certainly wanna have my name kept in there and not blotted out if it was written in there in the first place. And if the book is still in practice, you know. If you maintain a futurist view, then we would have to say, yes, the Book of Life is still there. And the names that are written in it are being left in it or they're being blotted out which makes you wonder about once saved, always saved from the Calvinist perspective. How a name written in the book of life could be blotted out, I don't know, but that's another subject. So when people die, they're going to heaven from the futurist view or they're going to hell, the dark covered place. Then Jesus will return. He's gonna rapture believers. This will bring about the first resurrection. And then after a thousand year reign, Hell and everybody who's in it, the covered place, will give up its dead and all will stand before the great white throne judgment is the way Revelation describes it. And they will be judged by what is written, it says, in the books, plural. That is not the book of life. They're not the books of life. They're what are judged in the books, uh, it says. And those whose names are not found written in the book of life, um, will be cast into the lake of fire. So again, from a futurist point of view, this has been ongoing and we're waiting for that to happen. If you believe that Jesus returned and took, rescued, saved the believers of his day, his church raptured it, and believers before, and took them before the destruction of Jerusalem when people were getting wiped out, then that second coming has already initiated the resurrection he has come, he has taken, taken up his church and rescued those who were in jeopardy as he said he would within a generation. Hell has been taken and emptied of its inhabitants and uh, thrown into the lake of fire and the great white throne judgment has occurred and those whose names were not found written in the Lamb's book of life, which is synonymous with the book of life, were cast into the lake of fire. And if, if this has all happened, I suggest it has, what does that mean to the book of life to us as we read and consider the application to believers today and for the past 2,000 years, reading the book of Revelation, reading about the book of life? And when we put it in those terms, it's, it's very reasonable to say, of course, the book of life and the, and the great white throne and hell and the lake of fire are all in place because we're reading about it. And so it has application to keep us moving and in line and things. So let's first try to talk about the book of life in scripture. The phrase book of life in Lamb's book of life is found eight times in the Bible, all in the New Testament all in the book of Revelation except one time. That's in Philippians 4.3, where Paul says, and I entreated thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, 
and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. That's the only reference to the book outside of Revelation, but it is a reference. And because it's a reference by a, a, a New Testament writer, that tells me that that term and that idea of book of life was prevalent among the early church, that they knew of it, they understood what it meant, and so to them, it was certainly applicable, if not to us. So well before Revelation, the notion of a book of life was alive and well, at least by the readers of Paul, who mentions it here in Philippians. We also have to admit that the book of life was uh, not only a great not only a reality, but the idea of a judgment at the great white throne was a reality. Now, just as an extemporaneous side issue, today with uh, Darby, Schofield, and dispensationalism that came about in the 1800s, 1900s, what's happened is we took away the judgment throne of God as the place where everybody will be judged, and we reinterpreted Corinthians, and we say, we started to say back then, the Christians have been judged at the cross. When you believe you were judged, and so the great white throne judgment has nothing to do with you. It has to do with those who were in Sheol and were poured out and stood before the great white throne. And, and that's, so that's what we've done is we've said there's a Bema seat judgment for saints where our works will be tried and those that were of gold or silver will not perish or stone, but those that were of wood, hay, and stubble will perish. There is a judgment, but it's not for our salvation. It's just for the works that we've done. Um, but I know some very seasoned Christians who are complete rabid futurists who say there's one judgment. The Bama seat judgment is just talking about how our works will be tried, but there is a judgment that we will have before God, and these are futurists. So they don't buy into that Darby-Schofield connection of there being a separate judgment for believers. Scripture does seem to talk, unless you look at that Bama seat, about a judgment. It doesn't seem to talk about there being this one and then that one and this one. It just talks about judgment. And I tend to believe, even if I embrace futurism, I tend to believe there is a judgment and I think that it happens immediately uh, upon our death, and we know our lot, and that is it. Uh, but anyway, I just wanted to separate for you what most evangel many evangelicals say about Bema seat judgment versus what the Bible says about great white throne judgment. So the idea of our names written in a book goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In Exodus 32, uh, 30 through 33, listen to what it says. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto his people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure, I shall make an atonement for your sin. So something's gone wrong, and Moses says, I'm going to the Lord for, on your behalf. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. So there's the sin. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou has written. So even Moses back in Exodus talks about a book that has already been written. His name is already in there. And he asked God on behalf of the nation of Israel to blot his name out. Then he said, and then it says, verse 33, and the Lord said to Moses, whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. 
So the idea of a book and blotting out is in the Old Testament. David, at one point in Psalm 69, he was great with imprecations against his enemies. Oh, let them do this and let them do that. And he says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Well, that's synonymous with book of life. So if we say how many times is it mentioned in the scripture, I said seven or eight times all New Testament. Here's an example of that proves that wrong. He is, he, it is mentioned once at least here in the book of the living that David mentions and not be written with the righteous, okay? So the book of the living is the same thing. Let's move forward now and enter into Daniel. Now, this, now we have, for the first time in our study of Revelation, we're entering into where Daniel starts to have a place. And this is important. While we will read about the book of life seven more times in Revelation, I suggest that understanding it is really the key to understanding it is, the, is gonna fall upon our understanding of Daniel. And in the first part of chapter 12, we're going to read uh, something that is gonna help us understand a little bit about this book of life. But before we get there, I just wanna read this to you. What happens in the book of Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. A lot of things happen in it, but this is one thing. Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream, and it's a wild dream. And Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, I want the magic men of the place to come and tell me what my dream was. Not even, I'm not gonna tell you what it is. You tell me what it is, and then you interpret it. And everyone's fearful because he says, I'm gonna put you all to death unless someone can tell me what my dream was. So Daniel comes up, and he says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery, which the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be, listen, in the latter days. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream was all about not something for their time. It was about something in the last days, the last days. Now, futurists would say, we're waiting for that to happen. LDS, the latter day saints, they believe they're a millennialist church. They're waiting for this thing to happen. But uh, others would say the last days are the end of all of this when it all culminates in his return. But one thing we can't agree upon is that whatever Nebuchadnezzar saw, it applies to the last days of either the age or the last days of all humankind. Now go with me to chapter 12. She has to go to the bar. Uh, I tell her, you know, do you have five o'clock? Isn't five o'clock the magic hour, Mary? She says, yes, 5 a.m. Okay, uh, that's a joke. All right, Daniel 12, verse one. At that time, what time is Daniel talking about? The time of the end of the age. The time when God has arranged for the salvation of man and the plan for the salvation of man to be complete. This is what scripture calls the end of the aeonos, the end of the age, at that time. And at that time shall Michael, the archangel, stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, this is prophetic, such as, as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. Okay, he says there's going to be something that you've never seen before at, the, at that time. 
You recognize that description? You should, because in Matthew 24, Andrew, Peter, James, and John all come to Jesus and they say, tell us, what are the signs of thy coming and the end of this age? And Jesus responds at verse 21, for then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor, nor shall ever be. This was Jesus' description of what it would look like. He takes it from Daniel, and what Daniel said would be in the latter days, all right? What was Jesus describing here? He was borrowing from the prophetic words of Daniel, and he describes to them the signs of his coming or return or presence. All right, go back to Daniel 12. And at that time, thy people, Daniel says, who? His people shall be delivered. Every one that shall be found written in the book. Okay? So there's a book, and in it is written every one of his who will be delivered during this time when there would be chaos and war and bloodshed that has never been seen before. That sounds like, a, like, like Daniel's, uh, the, book of Revel the book of Daniel chapter 12 has a direct, timely purpose, place, and application, doesn't it? Then verse two. And at that time thy people and everyone that shall be found written in the book, verse two, and many of them that slept in the dust of the earth shall awake. So now we're talking about those who have passed on at this time, awaking some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Again, futurists say we're waiting for this resurrection to occur. Uh, preterists say this occurred when Jesus returned as promised, 70 AD, 40 years later. So we're talking about the resurrection tied directly to Jesus' return and those that Daniel was writing about rising up to either everlasting life or everlasting contempt. Again, when would this happen? Futurists were waiting on it, Preterist 70 AD, verse three of chapter 12, Daniel. And they that be wise shall shine. Remember, Jesus has promised people that they will have clothes, uh, raiment of white. He's, uh, Daniel says, these shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Where uh, Jesus promised to give the morning star, here Daniel says, I will, they will be as stars forever and ever. We're getting a crossover now in Revelation between the book of Daniel and what John has been told by Jesus to tell the seven churches. And we're reading the fulfillment of those. Uh, and then we read in Daniel, but thou, O Daniel, ready? Shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end, of the end. This is what it's all about, Daniel. Everything I'm giving you, it's not for you. It's not for you, the Jews around you. It's not for their time. It's for the wrap-up. Shut this book up. Don't open it, okay? When many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Now, we know that the only time a book is unsealed, where the book is told, where someone is told, to, said, told commanded to unseal a book, is here in the book of Revelation, and it was unsealed then and not in Daniel's time. Daniel sealed the book up. The revelation, the uncovering, was the unsealing of the book. And it, and it was prefaced by, remember chapter one, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming quickly, okay? 
unseal this revelation and read. This is what you're going to happen. And take this to the seven churches and tell them this. So, so far in terms of weighing out the evidence, I see tremendous evidence for that having application to them then. What it means to us, we'll have to talk about as time goes on. So we know the contents of Daniel's book would be uncovered or revealed later, and it would be in the book of Revelation. So let's go now and read about the book of life in Revelation. Daniel spoke about it way back. He was told to seal these words up that you've written because they are going to be brought forth at the time of the end. The end is always talking about the end of the age. But now the book is unsealed and revealed, and as such, Jesus is appealing to some of the language of Daniel and says in Revelation 3, 5, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The question we still want answered is, does this promise still apply to believers now? And if there is a book of life kept with names written and blotted out. In other words, is there a book of life that God is keeping that was specific to their day and age and continues to be specific to our day and age? Let's look at the next passage that talks about the book of life in Revelation. Turn to Revelation 13:8, And here, I'm gonna read a little bit ahead of verse eight. This is talking about a description of these end times. And it says, and they worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given to him over all kindreds and tongues and nations, and all that dwelt upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. So from these passages, we gain some more insights into the book of life. First, we learn that there's an addendum to the term, the book, the book which is in the Old Testament, the book of life, or the book of the living, which is in the Old and New Testament. Now we have the book uh, of life of the Lamb. So we know it's Jesus' book of life. Then we see that the names written in it were written from the foundation of the world. Okay? This certainly speaks to the foreknowledge of God. I believe it also speaks to free will and that names can be blotted out. Um, it doesn't make any sense that the names would be written from the foundation of the world by God's foreknowledge, but they always just remained in there. So somehow, to me, something has to be in our hands where we could have the name blotted out. If not us, then at least them in that age. Then there appears to be a segment of the world who's going to worship the beast, and it says, and their names are not written. So what that tells us is that in the Jesus' book, from the foundation of the world, there were names that were never included in this book. That's foreknowledge to me of God, and, that's all, and, and if their names are never written, what's interesting is we've been reading all about names written in the book and some that are blotted out thereafter, but in this passage, it seems that there those who worship the beast were never ever even considered to be in this book. And this is why people will say 
God knows who are his. This is why in John, Jesus says, uh, I know who those who are mine, my sheep hear my voice. Their names are written in that book from the foundation of the world. That adds some new implications for us as we read it. So of course, again, have these things happened? The worshiping of the beast, etc. And again, depends on how you're gonna see it. Many uh, preterists, they say, look, this is all Romans, this is Nero. He fulfilled everything, the signs that are in Revelation that you read and in Matthew 24 of Jesus and, and the eagles and lightning coming from the east and this war and that war and running out into the desert and stay on the rooftops and, and all the things Jesus said fully fulfilled, supported by historians happening in that day. And then those who are futurists say, no, we are waiting for these signs to occur. There will be a beast. There will be an antichrist. There will be people whose names were never written and they're worshiping them. We'll cover these passages in more depth. Fine. Last, let's go to Revelation 17. We come to another set of passage, passages that are similar to what we just read. Uh, they say, the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is and, and yet is. And we'll talk all about that, but again, we have an affirmation, two different places in scripture in the book of Revelation that affirm to us there are those whose names have never been written in the Lamb's book of life. And uh, a Calvinist would call this determinist predestination. I would refer to it as free will foreknowledge of God. And then we begin to get to the end of the age time passages, uh, whether then or ahead of us is up to debate. The big one most recognizable to you is gonna be Revelation 20, chapter 12. I mean, chapter 20, verse 12. And it says, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened. Which is the book of life? So we've got books opened, and then we have another book, singular, open, that is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the things that were written in the books, not singular. So not just in the book of life. So it seems like we have uh, maybe some dockets of the crimes, possibly, or the failures in the books. And then we have, okay, you've done this, you've done that, you've done this, and here's the book of life. Nope, blotted out or never included, I don't know. But there are books and another book, and that's how it's set up. At this juncture, we're talking about a judgment that occurs before the judgment bar of God, which is initiated in Scripture contextually by the second advent of Christ coming. Again, there's the, the big debate. And um, it makes me wonder if in those books, maybe there's a book of prayers. Maybe there's a book of forgiveness. Maybe there's a book of who knows that they were subject to or we will be. And they opened up the books and, and, and another book was open and there was a cross-referencing and it's like, you know, you're SOL, dude, sorry. I, but I don't believe that uh, for anybody who had faith on Christ Jesus. The dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And then uh, Revelation 20, chapter, uh, chapter 20, verse 12. Let me give you just a little bit more the full context of the passage says, after that, and the sea gave up its dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Um, 
And again, when we get to that, we will talk about what it means, I think, the sea giving up its dead, uh, death and hell being uh, delivered up, et cetera, et cetera. And from all this, we can say that there was and may still be a judgment where all people, great and small, will go before the throne of God. And if the name's not written there in the book of life, you're in trouble. Uh, And then uh, this is what it says, beginning at verse one in the concluding chapter of Revelation for those who have overcome. And this is interesting. We hear Jesus say to every one of the seven churches, if you've overcome, if you had ears to hear, then I will give you this promise. That is never repeated again until the last chapter of Revelation. And this is what it says at verse one. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth and the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Paul says that was happening at the time of his life. They are already ready to vanish. So when we're talking about the new heaven and new earth in terms of a Hebraism, we're talking about the former economy is going away. The new economy in heaven and earth is about to unfold. And it says, and I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there should be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall be any more pain. The former things are passed away. And he sat upon his throne and said, I will make all things new. And he said unto me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. This is Christ Jesus talking. So radical stuff. But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. And there shall in no wise enter any anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, just as a quick side reference, going back to Daniel, later on in the book of Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to say, I'm going to make you a little golden god, and I'm going to put it out in the desert, and everybody has to worship this golden god. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we aren't worshiping that golden god. And so King Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to throw you into the fire. So they heated up the fire seven times, it's a natural thing. Even the guys putting them in there died, it was so hot. And they threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into that fire. And King Nebuchadnezzar peered into the fire and it says he saw four walking amidst the flames. And when they came out, not a hair was singed, their clothes wasn't singed. And I take that as a sign of what God is saying is that in Christ there is no burning. There is no, there is no fire to Uh, fear. There's no lake of fire to purge you of anything because Christ has been with you. Christ is your king. He walks with you in the fire. And, 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 uh, so, but here it says those who aren't covered, he's saying the fearful, the unbelieving, they will be, um, receive their part in the lake of fire. Just a side note. Finally, we have a warning, uh, uh, talking about, um, the book of life. It's in the last chapter of Revelation 22, 19. It says, if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. 
and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now, in the face of all this, we'll wrap it up. I suggest that the book of life role has been completed. I suggest that all of this is a history of what God has done to bring about everything necessary to reconcile all people to himself through his son. It all comes back to Paul's description of that chronology which we talk about. Let me read it again. It's short. I'll only read five verses. Paul, speaking of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Paul says, now Christ is risen from the dead. He's the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order again. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming, then cometh the end. They that are Christ at his coming, then cometh the end. So I challenge you guys at home who write me and watch, and I challenge those of you who are here that you find out what the Bible says, how and when the Bible says Jesus would come. You discover for yourself what the apostles said would be the time of his coming. And just set your prejudices aside because what Paul says here, Christ the first truth, afterward they that are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. And then everything that is described here in terms of the judgments and this and that has been consummated in that history of this beautiful, spiritually inspired, divine word of God book. And it's told us what has happened in order for God to be all and all. Because let's read on. And when he, Jesus, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. That's the last enemy to be destroyed. Now, we have to pause here. Many believers say, well, death has certainly not been destroyed, has it? We are dying all the time. All throughout scripture, death and dying. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Death is never referred to as physical death. We all are going to experience physical death in our mortality. When we're talking about death in scripture and Jesus having overcome sin and death, we are talking about spiritual death, always. He, it, it very rarely, the, and if there is an allusion to overcoming uh, death, it's always talked about overcoming the grave, and that's the resurrection. But generally, when we're talking about death in scripture, we are talking about Jesus overcoming spiritual death that alienates all from the presence of God. So they will, people will say, obviously, he hasn't overcome death, so this can't be a, uh, applied. But I admittedly uh, am a bit troubled when he says, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his death, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Has death, the last enemy, spiritual death, been destroyed? And that's a question we will ask ourselves uh, uh, and answer as we continue on through Revelation, but one last scripture, and that's in 2 Timothy 1.10, who says, speaking of uh, God, and was made manifest now through the manifestation of our Savior Jesus Christ, listen, who indeed did abolish death. Who indeed did abolish, abolish death. 
Now, if we're talking about physical death, we know he hasn't abolished it, and so Paul was wrong. But we know that's not what he's talking about. We know that he did abolish death. And we have a reference to that in 2 Timothy 1.10. All that being said, I would suggest that we are at a place, since everything has culminated here, I would suggest that we are at a place where everybody, those who have chosen to receive Christ by faith in this life, enter into heaven and his kingdom like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we with Christ having been with us will walk amidst the fire and will not be consumed. And I believe that those who have not, they will suffer loss in their part in the lake of fire, which is just the presence of God. That is the only thing going on. I don't believe there's any more names written in the book anymore because of the context of the scriptures. The second death, uh, which may have application to loss, is still him having dominion over all things. And nothing is going to beat what he has had victory over for those who die. We want people to receive Christ here. We want them to grow in Christ by faith. He is the only way to the Father. But it seems like when we read these passages and try to look at the context, the fulfillment has occurred for that. Now we have to understand how does it apply to us as we live our Christian lives. Questions or comments? Over there to David. Please state your name, gender, and uh, social security. David, neutral, 46132. <laughs> he can always get you. Uh, I find this interesting in Matthew 27, verse 52 mm -hmm. and 53, I think. Let's see. And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Oh. Now this is past tense. Oh, yeah. And came out of the graves after his resurrection. Oh, yeah. And went into the city and appeared unto many. Yeah. So anyway, I find that very interesting. I believe that's the beginning of that. Yeah, I, I yeah, do too. That wrap-up of the end time, yeah. yeah. Isn't that amazing? It is. Yeah. Great, great insight, Dave. Anybody else? Social is not necessary. Let's pray. Oh, wait. Oh, Rex. Um, yeah, this is Rex. I got another point um, in regards to the same thing, like the preterist versus futurist. Yeah. Uh, and back in, again, in Revelation 20, where it says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, yeah. not will be. Yeah. And whosoever was not found in the book, not whoever, you know, yeah. whosoever will not be found in the book was cast into the lake of fire. Again, yeah. it's yeah. all past tense. It so is. It, it implies that. I think the Greek word, they don't have a word for was, I don't believe, but the, the, the nouns, I believe, are uh, past tense words that they're mm. using there. So... Well, if I remember our studies with your son, uh, you did the best in the class, at least verbally, so I think you would understand what the tense was. Great point. Thank you. Yeah. It's not easy to, you guys at home, it's not easy sometimes to understand it that way, but this stuff has been done. Thank God it's been done. And now we are free to pursue him and love and uh, just praise God for these insights. Anything else? All right, let's pray. 
One more, Jonathan. Hi, I'm Jonathan. I uh, just wanted to say for the record, I do believe that there is still a book of life and the people living today uh, can have our names written in them. Okay. Thank you, Jonathan. Anything else? All right, let's pray. Lord, open our hearts to your spirit. And we know the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, temperance, in which there is no law. And so we know if the Spirit is combative and troubled and burdened and full of shame, fear, guilt, that these things are not the fruit of the Spirit. And so we're operating by the fruit of our own flesh or the fruit of the things that rely in vestiges of our souls, but... Lord, we just pray that we will be able to abide in your spirit, trust in you, trust the contents of this book and what they tell us and, and, and what has been revealed and how it can apply to us in our lives. And let us seek you, Lord, and go out and be Christians uh, as we leave this gathering today. We pray for Nancy and her surgery will uh, go as God's will is intended. And Kathy, that she her ankle will heal, we pray for Dawn uh, Faber and her, uh, her battle with cancer and uh, the treatments she's undergoing and her illness and difficulty. We pray uh, for Danita's family. Uh, her mom suddenly, abruptly passed away last week and we just pray for all of the family that traveled out to Colorado and that they will be protected and uh, supported by your spirit. We pray for our sister Heidi and continued uh, health and, and uh, success and uh, whatever is in your hands, Lord, uh, bestow it upon her and give her that knowledge that you are there and Rex and Ty and everybody else who loves Heidi. And we pray for those whose names aren't written on this prayer list, but you have them written in your heart and you know what we need and you know what we seek and we know where we lack. So help us to maybe step back and relax a little bit just to trust in you. And uh, such a difference sometimes between having faith and then trusting. So while our head might have and understand the faith, help us to trust you in the things that you place before us. We love you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Therefore, justified, justified by, by faith. faith.